All right, we are returning to First Thessalonians this morning, and I want to maybe just get your thoughts flowing by asking the question, do you recall maybe an occasion when you were down, you were despairing, you thought all was lost, and then one bit of news lifts you, and it lifts you by giving you what you need to keep going. That's what happens in our text today. And I know I have read this book, 1 Thessalonians, I've read it probably no less than 150 times in the past four or five months. And as I studied this today, I am, I am unearthing treasures that I did not even get to experience when I read through this thing 150 times. Beautiful, beautiful truth here. So I want to just jump right in today. I I got a a little bit of background here from our verse 6, chapter 3 and verse 6, and then we'll move forward with uh, 7, 8, 9, 10. I want to read those verses to you now. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 10. It says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, And reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Let's pray once more. Father, we do plead with you to send the Spirit to open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, transform us, that we are ever more like Jesus from having met with you and met with one another face-to-face here today. Do these things, Father, for your own glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The title this morning is The Good News. The Good News, and I'll explain the title maybe a little more as we go. The Good News. To get us into this, I want to give you the background, which is verse 6, really, here, the background It says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported to you, reported that you always remember us kindly, long to see us as we long to see you. I want to note a few things by way of background. First off, there is a relationship, the relationship right here. Timothy has just now, is how it really reads, just now come to us from you. The tone in these words, as we've been hearing, is deeply, deeply personal. This is not simply a mention of travel plans being fulfilled. Timothy serves as the link between Paul, who is now separated from them because of this persecution. He was taken away, separated from them. Timothy is now the link from Paul to these believers, these believers that Paul holds in a very special place in his heart. It is this fledgling church that is under persecution and in need of every help they can get. And Timothy maintains 
that relationship during this long season, months and months and months, even into years, where they're separated, and the only contact that we're aware of is these letters right here. So, Timothy is sort of the glue holding this together. And furthermore, as Pastor Kyle explained last week, Timothy was sent at a great expense, a great sacrifice to Paul. He felt a heavy sense of loss. In his ministry, when he needed Timothy the most, he knew that the Thessalonian believers needed needed Timothy more. And so he sent Timothy, and he did it for their sake. And I don't know if you realize it, but Timothy's report is the reason that this letter is being written. Paul and his companions companions are they're, they're beaten down. They're on the mission field. Many commentators say that Paul and his companions were to the point of severe depression and directionless about the, the way forward in ministry. They were beaten down by all the opposition. And so when Paul's, Paul hears of how well the Thessalonian church is doing, as Hebert comments, he says, his heart overflows with the inspiration of the occasion, with the spontaneous glow of affection and joy. This verse right here is for all you folks that love to write letters. You love the thank you cards, and you know when something comes, and you're just, you're just, you're just overjoyed, right? You're like, let me get that card, let me get that pen, because i got to write these folks a letter. I wish I were like that, honestly. My dad did his best to make me like that, but it just didn't stick. I guess I'm rebellious in that way. But I'm thankful for all you folks that have that that sort of natural response. I don't know what to do, but I can write a letter. I don't know what to do. I can send a thank you card. Yeah. And I get cards from you. I opened one this morning. So thankful for that. And your thoughts of me. This is that occasion when Paul was so prompted in his own heart because he was formerly despairing, directionless, depressed, and he gets the news of the believers in Thessalonica, and he's like, I'm going to write these words, and I'm going to send this letter. There is that relationship. There's also the report. He calls it here, good news. Interestingly, that's where we get our title today. Not just gospel, good news, he says here. This is literally the word for gospel. He, he says um, to read it from the Bible. Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported so on and so forth. It's the good news. It's the word for the gospel. It's the only time in Paul's writings where he uses this word to describe something other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So this is not accidental. It's a word of cheer. It's a word of glad tidings. It shows us the premium value that Paul places on all the growth that happens after people are saved. We could go on and on again about how important it is to understand our great commission, disciple-making, is not simply making converts. Oh, we got them in, so now we're good. No. You're not done until they're presented in perfection in glory when Jesus returns. 
In fact, when they convert, when they follow Jesus, that's just the starting line. And so he puts this high value on all those those things that happen post-conversion, all those things that happen along the way. And these reports of salvation are certainly things that we want to hear and Paul wants to hear. Yet the reports of continued growth and maturity and perseverance under persecution, that is, it only increases our joy. It only causes our faith to swell and thanksgiving, as he says right here, to abound. Y'all remember what John says in his letters? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy. No greater joy. This is the report. It's the good news that mentions their faith and love, which got the letter started, chapter 1 and verse 3. Faith speaks to the Godward aspects of their testimony, which had become an example, as we know from chapter 1, to all the believers in all the known world. Love here, so faith and love, love speaks to the relational aspects of their testimony, which bound them together as a unified community. Hebert here says, if their faith separated them from the world, then their love united them more closely to each other. There is the relationship, there's the report, and then there's the reciprocation. And all of this is background, okay? There's the reciprocation. The last part of six there. He says, he reported, that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So Timothy reported that their affections for Paul are or Paul, excuse me, Paul's affections for them are reciprocated. They feel the same way about Paul as he does about them. You know that occasion when, when you tell somebody, and maybe, maybe it's that occasion, you're, you're sort of going out on a limb here, but you tell them, hey, I love you. What are you expecting them to say back? I love you too. But you know, if you tell somebody, I love you, and they say, thank you, then you know that that love is not reciprocated in the same way. You know you've heard it. You've heard it. Guys, let's just be friends. Then you know that that love is not reciprocated in the same way. They say, it's not you, it's me. It's not you, I promise, it's not you, it's me. Then you know they simply do not feel the same way about you that you feel for them. Right here, this love is reciprocated. All the fond memories that Paul had and wrote about in these previous chapters, all the fond memories, they hold those memories in high regard just as he does. Literally, it says, good remembrance of us always. Always. This was and is their continued attitude toward Paul. They remember his teaching, his influence, and they are filled with love at the thought. And not only that, but just as Paul longs to see them face to face, 
so they do him as well. It's reciprocated. This is a wonderful, I had no idea before we decided to preach through this book of the Bible, I had no idea that this was so indicative of how the church should operate between its members and other members and members and its leaders that we actually feel the same way about one another that I feel for you and you feel that for me. Oddly, oddly enough, this is a very emotionally charged text. They reciprocated those feelings. And so it's with that background that Paul begins to describe what that brought about, what that produced in his life and the life of his companions. It's possible that you've never considered before how the reports of God's work in your brothers' and sisters' lives undergird your steadfastness in the Christian life. Think about that for a moment. More than just like hearing the news, what does that news do for you? I know for me, when I'm looking into the lives of our people and I hear these kinds of reports, it only motivates me. It drives me further in ministry. And that's how we see it here unfold in the text. I want to give you the theme this morning. The next slide there, the theme is the good news concerning the good news, the gospel, the progress of the gospel, helps us keep going. The good news concerning the good news helps us keep going. This is what the gospel was producing in Thessalonica, and Paul says, man, it just, it's given me what I need to press on. I want to give you two ways this happens from this text, from verses 7 and 8, first off, a renewed drive for mission. It gives us a renewed drive for mission. He says right here, for this reason, verse 7, that is based on the report from Timothy. Paul and his companions have renewed drive for the mission of Christ's glory and honor spread through these local churches far and wide. Paul describes his response as comfort. I read it there for you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So he describes it as comfort, but it also carries the idea of encouragement. So let's kind of unpack both sides of that. When so many things could have gone wrong, when Paul's thoughts about the Thessalonians, remember, he couldn't just check Facebook and see what they were posting. He couldn't just see from a distance what was happening. No, he had to rely on the word of Timothy. And so for this season, I don't know what's going on there. I know they're under persecution. I get reports of persecution. Surely his thoughts were running wild. What if their countrymen go too far? What if they put them to death? What if they can't withstand the persecution? What if... My labor ends up being in vain, as we talked about last time. You know, Paul could have driven himself mad with all of the possibilities that could have happened on this occasion. And you know exactly what that's like, don't you? All the possibilities of what could go wrong in your life 
or this situation or in a situation with someone that you love, the anxiety, the paranoia, the, the worry, the lack of faith, the sin, the sin, saints. Did Paul sinfully worry? Is that what you're saying, Matt? I don't think I could say that from this text. I don't know if he sinned in his worry, but it seems that it was a constant temptation for him. How else will we get wonderful passages about how he learned to have joy and faith no matter his circumstances? And I would argue that I think we see a marked difference between early Paul compared with end-of-life Paul. He had, as he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 28, the constant pressure of anxiety for all the churches. And at this point, as we mentioned, he was likely dealing with debilitating depression prior to writing this letter. He was overwhelmed, as he says right here, with distress and afflictions. And then yet in Philippians, and where was he when he wrote that letter? In jail. From prison, he tells them at the end of the letter, man, I've, I've discovered the secret, the secret to having joy no matter what is happening around me. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The man in jail, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what he says. He says, I know my God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Hey, hey, uh, prison guard, can you, can you bring me a little more food? You see how he learned not to be overwhelmed by these anxieties, not to give in to the temptation to worry. But right here, right here, when he was pressed, and he heard from Timothy, he was greatly comforted, relieved. His despair was overtaken by joy. You know, there's a long, customized list of the things that you're tempted to worry about or maybe even cause you anxiety. But here's the question I would ask. Are you so invested? Y'all hear me on this. Are you so invested in your, in your brothers and sisters in Christ that their growth makes it on that list? Say it differently. You'll lose sleep over the bill that needs to be paid or the job that you want or the upcoming doctor's appointment. But do you have regular thoughts about your brother or sister's fight against sin? Fight to love Jesus. Fight for holiness. Are you having regular thoughts? Are you regularly mentioning them in prayer about your brother or sister's opposition in the faith? Is your concern elevated when fellow saints simply don't show up on Sunday morning? Does it affect your prayers? I'll tell you that when that concern is comforted at the good news of more and more faith, 
more and more reciprocal affection. I, I don't know if I can describe. I don't know if I can descri- describe what it does to comfort me in the depths of my soul. Paul and his crew here, they needed comfort, but they were also encouraged in this. The report breathed new life into Paul and his statement in verse 8. Honestly, it's kind of odd. Did y'all catch that? Verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You say, this can't be right. (laughs) Surely, Surely Paul's not saying that his life depends on the faith in Thessalonica, right? Surely he's not saying that that his life rises and falls with the obedient faith of these believers. But here, here a commentator on this. He says, he says, before there had been, before there had been a, a dead weight of apprehension. And you get that sense of desperation, that sense of despair, that sense of depression, directionless. Before there had been that dead weight of apprehension, they felt lifeless with no enthusiasm. From the position of a pastor, I know exactly what this is like, but I want you to know it too. I want you to share it too. You know, there are weeks, there are weeks when it feels, it feels like there is no way forward in ministry. I know you don't believe it, but there are those thoughts where it's like, this is going to be the end of me. This is going to be the end of Cedar View Baptist Church this week. There's no way forward in ministry. There's no way forward in mission. And it's paralyzing. It's debilitating. And then just when I'm at the end of myself. It's as though God meets me in that time of need and renews my drive for mission. He sends me exactly what I need. He sends me the report that I need. He sends me the good news that I need. And sometimes it is simply the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it possible, folks? That we don't have drive for mission because we've not invested very much in one another. See, the, the shameful thing is that many folks, even in the church, they can come in and they can drop everything and leave and it won't make any difference. What, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our lives, for our own growth? What does that mean for our contribution to the kingdom? What does that say about us? Paul says, man, this report, it renews us. Hebert, again, y'all know I depend on Hebert. He's so good. D. Edmund Hebert, if you want to look up his commentary, is so good. Hebert says here, they felt they had been given a new lease on life and could go on with a sense of fullness and satisfaction. And he says, he says, had they, the, the Thessalonian believers, had they abandoned the faith, it would have been a veritable death blow to Paul. That may have been the end of Paul. 
but life. As he says, life overcomes the looming presence of defeat and death. And Paul reveals his lofty expectation for these Thessalonian believers. For now we live, and that next word, if, is also the word since. So I want you to be careful. This is not him saying, look, I'm going to live as long as you're still believing. If you don't believe anymore, I'm going to die. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, for now we live since you are standing firm in the faith. Because we heard this good report, we are fueled, we are driven all the more. When I was despairing even just days ago and I got this report from Timothy, it gave me what I needed to press on. I have life again. He's not expressing his doubt, but rather full confidence that they will continue more and more. A renewed drive for mission. It's one way it helps us to keep going. Secondly, the second way, there is a revived dependence on God. A revived dependence on God. The response here is not directed at the Thessalonian believers. Rather, it points to God in thanksgiving. He says, verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Who's he concerned about? He's concerned about God. As we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul recognizes their faith and love, their reciprocal affection All of these things, he says, they come from the gracious hand of God. So you know what our prayer should be? When we are faithful, when I see you are faithful, I'm not going to turn around and say, hey, thank you for just conjuring up such wonderful faithfulness and service. No, you know what I'm going to do? I thank God for your faithfulness because he did it. And you ought to be thinking the same thing. When you see holiness in the lives of your fellow brothers and sisters, you say, I thank God for what he's doing in you. I see it. I note it. And he asks this rhetorical question here. Can we thank God enough is really what it says. Can we thank God enough? There is obviously that answer where there is an unending measure of gratitude reserved for God and the way that he's preserved and preserved and built up this local congregation. The idea is that any attempt to express what this meant to Paul would fall incredibly short. It would be overwhelmingly inadequate. And yet we read of one word that he mentions right here. He says, he says, for all The joy, all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. One word Paul uses here to describe his feelings, the feelings of his entourage. This passage, and I would tell you, even the whole letter lets us know just how much Paul was in touch with his own emotions. He feels deeply, and that makes him a good model for pastors 
for missionaries. It makes him vulnerably dependent upon God. And so we know he was previously on the brink of despair, overcome with depression, and now he's filled with joy, inexpressible, all due to the news that this church was becoming what God intended it to be. All the joy, he says, all the joy that I feel for you all. You know, Psalm 30. Psalm 30 tells us, you're familiar, it tells us that weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It was a long night for Paul. It was a long night for Paul. But you know, it was an even longer night for the Lord Jesus. Just thinking of the weight of sin and God's wrath at Gethsemane, sweating droplets of blood under the crushing burden of so much more than a wooden cross, taking the lashes and the crown and the the mockery and the beatings. He entered into our despair. He took on our depression. He was pleased to take the death blow on our behalf. The Lord of glory died. But you know what came? that morning on the third day. Oh, friends, joy comes in the morning. Joy was set before him. And he had all the joy because he succeeded in purchasing a people for God's own possession. His life was gone, but he was given new life. His life was gone. He was given new life. And now, just like our text for today, and now he lives. And you know the proof that his life brings life because you, saints, you, believer, right now today are standing fast in the Lord. You know the proof of many others that Jesus lives, you, saint. You, church. And so Paul tells them, Paul tells them, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Verse 8. Jesus' death was not in vain. His suffering was not for nothing. His passion was not wasted. And you, believer, are the lasting proof that Christ's death was effective to save to the uttermost, to ransom captive sinners. This is the original good news. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you today, if you do not have this good news, if you do not have this salvation, would you be welcomed into the redeemed today? Would you confess your sin? Would you repent of sin? Would you know for sure that Christ has saved you? Repent, repent and believe, entrust your very soul to the Lord Jesus himself today. And we're not quite done. If that's you, sincerely, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time to follow Jesus. Declare it once and for all. I belong to him. I'm not going anywhere else. I belong to him. And then let the rest of your life prove that out. I am drawing to a conclusion. And in conclusion, I want to finish with these ideas. And this will be aimed more at you believers, especially you church members. As we described, like Jesus, Paul felt all the joy. And it caused him to depend on God for two petitions, as he mentions right here, right here, as we pray most earnestly, day and night, excuse me, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. First off, he prayed earnestly, earnestly. There's not a word, pleading, pleading, day and night. Y'all ever pled day and night for something from God? Was it, was it showing up at church? I doubt it. For Paul, it was like, I just want to see you people. And I'm asking God, I'm beseeching God night and day that I can see you. So these petitions... These petitions, these two positions were his constant prayer concerning the saints at Thessalonica. And I don't even know how to adequately describe how important these two things were and are. First, first petition, to see them face to face. And I've been known to beat a dead horse. And I will gladly do it again. The horse that we brought in here a couple weeks ago to beat. Being with one another, face to face. Attending the gathering of the saints as the Lord has prescribed and told us explicitly in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some. I want you to listen very closely. I'm going to say these words as I have them, okay? Listen very closely. Being with the saints in worship and as many other chances as you get is absolutely necessary to your Christian life and ministry. Somehow we read these words of Paul who prayed night and day that he could see these people face to face to minister to them and we can't even get up on Sunday morning. 
We can't schedule all the other business that we have around the church gathering. We can't prioritize the gathering of the church. And so I'm challenging you right now. Will you sit with a calendar of the past six months and just take inventory of all the occasions when you've not been with the saints in worship? When you've not sat next to your spouse, when you've not sat next to your kids in the worship of the Lord Jesus, the greatest task that you can do on this earth, the greatest task. And then somehow you expect to grow as a Christian. Somehow you expect your children to believe. This is one of the things that brings me to the point of despair. I sit and think, what would the church be if all the saints just gathered regularly? What could we do? He who has ears to hear. That's all I can say. The second petition. In many ways, it depends on the first. That they might supply what is lacking in their faith. Paul's insatiable desire. I, I, I only got so many words to use, folks. And you know I love words. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It's an insatiable desire. He won't quit. Insatiable desire to do whatever is needed to make this local church what it needed to be. The idea here is, is not that something was wrong in their faith, but that their faith needed to grow, that they needed to mature, that it needed to abound all the more. He knew that these young believers needed so much more to happen, and he was not satisfied simply letting them go letting them be on their own. He did everything he could to get there, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It was his longing to see them face to face, to be with them again, to be like that nursing mother, like that guiding, encouraging father. And so I would ask you, will you prioritize being face to face? And if you won't, then how will you supply what is lacking in my faith? I need you, saint, for my own good. How will you supply what is lacking in the faith of others? How will we supply what is lacking in your faith? Maybe, maybe now is the time to evaluate those things. Maybe now is the time to recommit to the things that God has given you, blessed you with, showered upon you so that you can complete the mission. The name, the fame of the glory of Jesus, as well as the full maturity of the church. That's your job, too. It's my job, and it's your job, too. Man, we are 
so encouraged when we hear those good reports, how the faith is advancing. Maybe this morning you could share something with somebody. Maybe you could just hear something from somebody about the progress of the gospel in the lives of one another and let that be the the fuel for you, the drive for you. And then make those petitions to God. God, as much as I'm able, I am going to be there for these folks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make them more like Jesus. And I'm going to be here so they can make me more like Jesus. Let that be your prayer today. Petition God for that. I do not want to lose our folks that do not know the gospel. As I mentioned earlier, today, repent and believe. I'm going to be available to pray with you, to encourage you, to counsel you, whatever way you need. Let's respond together as the Spirit leads. Father, we, oh, we come to you pleading for the things that Paul just mentioned here to so prioritize the face-to-face gathering of the church. Father, we're thankful that you've put us among believers that actually need us. You've put us in a place on purpose. The Holy Spirit, Father, according to your word, has put us together on purpose for the common good. And so we ask, We ask, Father, that we would adopt your view, your high view of the church of the Lord Jesus. Father, we ask also that those who do not understand fully what it means to follow Jesus, they have not come to that place of repentance and faith, that declaration that is made public through baptism. Father, we pray that you would bring them to that place right now, that they would know Jesus that they would publicly profess him, that they would be united with us on mission for your glory. Father, be glorified, we pray, in our response. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.